Welcome to episode 237 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have our regular contributor, resident historian, Surf William. We talk with the Surf about foundation myths of the United States, about propaganda and how it's used as a motivation for soldiers in war, flaws of our founding fathers about Confederate statues, about honoring a past that maybe isn't so honorable. We talk about millennials a bit, about keeping on with the fight, the good fight, while staying positive, and of course, capitalism. You know how he likes to talk about capitalism, that Marxist? Yeah. Anyhow, Surf William on this week's program. We also have an EW essay titled Neighborhoods and a poem titled Harry Dean. And uh, all of this is enshrined within several great tunes. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Episode 237 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. So what do we do now? How about the, I, I like that uh, hands on the wheel. At a time when the world seems to be spinning hopelessly out of control. There's believers and deceivers and old in-betweeners that seem to have no place to go It's the same old song It's right and it's wrong And living is just something that I do And with no place to hide I looked in your eyes And I found myself in you I looked to the stars and tried all of the bars and I'm nearly gone up in smoke but now my hands on the wheel and there's something that's real and I feel like I'm going home In the shade of an oak Down by the river Sat an old man and a boy Setting sails, spinning tails And fishing for whales With a lady they both enjoy the same damn tune It's the man in the moon It's the way that I feel about you And with no place to hide I looked in your eyes And I found myself in you I looked to the stars, tried all the bars, 
And I've nearly gone up in smoke But now my hand's on the wheel I've something that's real And I feel like I'm going home It's good, huh? Very good. Good words. And there's a couple of mistakes in it, but leave them in there. Who, who gives a fuck? It doesn't matter. Huh? It doesn't matter. No. That's uh, one of the first things you said to me. Huh? I remember when we started doing gigs together, one of the first things you said to me was, there are no mistakes. <laughs> Neighborhood. In the land of Hachi Malachi, that song has been ringing in my head. The strange childhood TV community run by Miss Judy. Underdog was my favorite. Who will come to save the day? There is no need to fear. Underdog is here. I guess my early experiences really did nurture me to be an artistic lefty. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, underdog. And the particular disposition of a self-imposed inquisition leads me to understand rather matter-of-fact and out-of-hand the psychological brand apparent in the cultural DNA I've established despite some strong influences coming from confluence of experiences with a breed much, much different in their philosophical outlook. Living right close to my enclave, as part and parcel of my little nook, how I understand better the ways, the substance feeding the errant mores. And still we have a drink together while sharing our recollections of days and nights spanning years in our neighborhood. In the manner like since we were children, we imagined we always would.
Is this Surf William? It might be. It depends. Well, you, you know you're never to call me at this number, right? I'm supposed to call you. It's a, how did you get this number for Troubadours <laughs> and Rock on Tours? No last names. No last names. And, and now my picture's on the screen, which is troubling as well. All right, let's get that off. There we go. Sir William, good to have you back on the program, Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And I, I understand you want to talk about light fare today, refugees, natural disasters, climate change, right-wing idiots. Uh, and <laughs> genocide too, I think you mentioned. And I'm, I'm, and the and the founding and foundation myths. Foundation myths, like okay, like what do you mean? Like George Washington cutting down, chopping down the cherry tree, blah blah blah. He doesn't ha he didn't do that. He didn't chop down the cherry tree. It's an interesting thing that I'm studying. I'm, I'm, I'm studying foundation myths, not all foundation myths, but I'm just studying the use of foundation myths and their importance in forming a national identity. And uh, so if the foundation myths are inaccurate, then our identity is based on inaccuracy. Yeah, I mean, the foundation myths are, are sometimes partially based in historical fact. And then usually what happens is, in the case of America, a lot of things that actually happened were then embellished after the fact to sort of encourage patriotism and and uh, uh, the desire for people to even take up arms if they had to. So you'll see that a lot of the a lot of our foundation myths about the rebel around the Revolutionary War um, were developed uh, a solid twenty five to thirty five years after the Revolutionary War. So people felt the need at some point in the early history of this country to start to develop these myths because they wanted to encourage a sense of national identity. And also, when you think about the War of 1812, which came after, they wanted to encourage young people to be willing to fight for this, for this concept. Yeah. Yeah. Motivation. I, I'm, studying, I'm studying Roman foundation myths, which are a whole other thing, which are kind of funny. But, uh, and, 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 you know, they, they, they are developed for different reasons and in different ways. The American foundation myths, there was a lot of intention in the embellishment or just the sheer made up stories that people wrote after the fact, just because they made a better story. So just journalism or partly fiction, fictionalized. Yeah, partly, fi part, partly fiction because it was more interesting than the reality. Right. And we, and we needed some, we needed some mythology. I had a group of students write down, you know, what they think of when they, what they thought of when they thought of the founding of America. And the responses were pretty interesting. It, it, they ranged everywhere from freedom, patriotism, and the Bill of Rights to slavery, white men, and fancy hats. <laughs> fancy so, hats. Yeah, fancy hats. And, and, uh, I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find parallels between uh, the foundation myths of ancient Rome and the foundation myths of America. And I'm trying, you know, my, my effort is to have students think about these foundation myths in a different way. And through studying ancient Rome, maybe going back and taking another look at our foundation myths and determining which ones which ones are based in fact and which ones are based in sort of this uh, this notion of how we would like to see ourselves. Well, let me ask you, Sir William. By the way, Sir William is our resident historian here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Uh, he is an educator, 
and he is an educated man, formally and, of course, self-taught in many regards, probably the better edu- education he has, he has earned, um, in my opinion. But anyhow, give us an example of another foundation myth. You mentioned George Washington. He didn't cut down the cherry tree, right? Right. Or he did, and he he could he he could tell a lie. He never told them. Maybe, you know. Right. He probably lied. He probably lied in his life. <laughs> he probably. There were lied. probably some lies in there. Yeah. Uh, um, well, you know, just little little things like "Give me liberty or give me death." The 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 big the big finale of the the Nathan Hale speech to the Virginia legislature, right, to get everybody motivated to go to war. Right. Um, those lines were written by somebody forty years after. After he gave that speech, he did give a speech to the Virginia legislature. He inspired. It was an inspiring speech. Nobody wrote it down. There's no transcript of it. You know, someone 40 years later decided that that was a really great way to end that speech. Hmm. So, so they said, give me give me liberty or give me death. And uh, there's no there's no basis in fact for that. Um, there's another quote from um, Ethan Allen. Ethan Allen was capturing Fort. I think it was Fort Ticonderoga, and there's a there's a quote that he said uh, regarding the commander of the camp, and Ethan Allen himself made that up. He didn't really. All the people who were there said, you know, all of the soldiers who were right there with him at the time said he didn't say that quote. I'd have to look it up to see exactly what the quote was. But what he really did say was, you know, tell the commander of the camp to get out get out here now, or I'm or I'll I'll run him through, I'll kill him. So Ethan Allen didn't like the sound of that. So he embellished that after the fact. And there's a lot of other things. Paul Revere never said the, the, the British are coming, as we all know now, because he was British himself. He never would have said the British are coming. He would have called them lobster backs or red coats. But he never would have said the British are coming. That wouldn't have made any sense to everybody who considered themselves British at the time. That right. would have been a, a bizarre thing to say. Right. Um, these are little things. These are little things. You can start to get into the whitewashing of American history, and now we're seeing it with these Confederate monuments that are being taken down. You know, we, we, we choose to – it's an amazing history that this country has that we could commit atrocities like slavery and then memorialize slave owners with giant statues in town squares. So we have a really warped sense of our history, <clears throat> and part of the problem is we've never had to fully face the consequences of the atrocities that we've committed. So you could think about slavery. You could think about the American, uh, the Native Americans. And uh, by the way, Chief Seattle's Chief Seattle has a very famous speech where he talks about the white man slaughtering the buffalo, and he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, uh, you know, we kill the buffalo to live. And we respect the buffalo because we need them to live. The white man kills the buffalo from their iron horses and rides right by and leaves the carcasses there to rot. And he said, you know, why would the white men do this? You're going to you're going to deplete this resource and we're all going to die. The white man is very strange. Well, Chief Seattle probably said a lot of things, but he never said that. First of all, in 1845, Chief Seattle had never seen a train before. So uh, and Chief Seattle was living in the far west. So a lot of the things that he's purported to have said, he never said that. And historians agree he never said that. So you have these little embellishments. You have little things like that, people putting words in other people's mouths or um, modifying their speeches. Or you have really big things like the whitewashing of the brutality of slavery. Um, 
the whitewashing of the treatment of, of women in early America, the treatment of minorities, uh, the treatment of Native Americans. So, you know, it all, in my opinion, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encourage people to think critically about the early, the founding of our nation. Well, um, let, me, let me ask you about the Confederates. I like that. I'm glad that you're doing that. We, we all need uh, to reflect on our history and to understand for real uh, what right. what the history is, so we better know why we are the way we are, and and, and how to go from here, to mm-hmm. you know where to go from here. So, though the Confederate statues, I want to pause there for a second. It's it's interesting to me as a as a historian. Do you think uh, pulling those statues down in a way keeps us from remembering the bad aspects of of the Confederacy and of uh, you know, the, the slave owners and such, is it better to have them around so at least we can say that's an abomination and we can remember what it's about or or not? Well, well no one's burning books here. So, so what, you're, what you just expressed was um, another aspect of the pro-Southern argument. The pro-Southern argument is, you know, you will not erase our history. You know, this is part of our history, and you're taking these statues away. And I, I have to laugh. Is somebody playing the trumpet there? I have to laugh a little bit. <laughs> it's always a funny dynamic with us. I have to laugh at that, and I'll tell you why, and then I'll respond to what you just said. Because no one's erasing anybody's history. But read a book. Nobody's burning down libraries. Go to the library and get a book on the Confederacy. If you want to learn about Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee, uh or or Longstreet, who's my favorite Southern general, by the way. Um, you, you so there's a difference between acknowledging the past, honoring the past, even, and and I mean, do you really want to honor people who were fighting to maintain slavery? That's the first question we have to ask ourselves as a nation: Are these this, the individuals that we want? You know for which we look for aggrandizement. That's the first thing. The the second thing is there's a whole segment of our population whose ancestors were enslaved by these people. So they get to go walk past their their town halls and their city halls and their public buildings, their publicly owned buildings, and see statues of people who owned their ancestors. And to me, that's completely untenable. When one steps back and looks at that objectively, there's only one conclusion you can come to. You can't have those statues on public land as a symbol of something that we're honoring. They don't. They, it's not about honoring them, and you can't do that in a public space. You can put them in a museum. You can put them somewhere where you're doing history lessons on the Civil War. I personally don't have a problem with statues at Gettysburg, for example. Right. So there's there's a statue of Robert E. Lee in Gettysburg. There's statues of a lot of generals at Gettysburg. A lot of southern regiments have memorials there. I don't have a problem with that. That's part of a historical that's part of historical fact. And that seems to be the place where you can have those things and you can acknowledge the atrocities that were committed um, by slave owners. I I I know it's a, I know it's a worn out analogy, but the analogy of Nazi leaders, the analogy of Goebbels and Goering and Hitler 
being, you know, having statues at city halls in cities in Germany and Austria is utterly absurd. It's utterly absurd. So you're, you're yeah. equating you're equating a general Robert E. Lee to to uh, you to, know, Rommel. to Rommel to Rommel yeah. yeah yeah I am I am and Rommel was a great listen Rommel was a great general the Desert Fox the Desert Fox and he and he never was a Nazi he never Hitler never liked Rommel Hitler just had to acknowledge that Rommel was a great general uh, I mean ultimately Hitler had you know Hitler had Rommel Rommel kill himself you know that was Rommel's choice. Kill yourself, or or you'll probably be executed. Rommel never was a dedicated Nazi, but he fought for that cause. And I don't believe that Lee was ever really uh, a powerful advocate for slavery. I think Lee has, even in his writings, talks about slavery and how wrong slavery is. But he was a slave owner, though. And he heard was a slave owner. Yeah, he was a slave owner. He was a slave owner. So, so the reality is, I think it's really, really. Um, it's really uh, treacherous ground when you start to honor, and that's the word I'm going to use because we put these statues up in front of city halls. You know, we put these statues in the same place where we have memorials to soldiers who died in World War II. You know, these people fought for an institution that we all acknowledge now, all acknowledge now is utterly brutal. And, and so, no, I don't think their statues belong in city halls and on public land. Now that they're built and they're up, maybe there's a place we can put them where it makes sense. But certainly, I wouldn't want to be an African-American having to walk past these things every day. Right. That would be an indication to me right. that I am not welcomed in my own I'm country. a second-class citizen, right? I'm my a second-class citizen in my own country. And that's the thing. When you look at what Southerners that decry the... Uh, movement to pull down the statues honoring these, these uh, folks that were on the wrong side of, of history. They say, well, this is, you know, uh, many of my ancestors fought in this war and they died in this war and they suffered in this war. And, you know, they should be remembered because it's part of our history here in the South. And, uh, you know, they, they were our family members. Mm -hmm. and, and all. But yeah, yeah, but they did the wrong thing. <laughs> they, right. they did the wrong thing. They did the wrong thing. I differentiate between foot soldiers, common soldiers, and, and generals. And a common soldier could really believe that he's out in the fields fighting for, fighting for his farm and his family. And let's face it, the vast majority of Southerners didn't even own slaves. So the institution that they were fighting to maintain, in my opinion, they were duped, as foot soldiers often are. The propaganda that the foot soldiers were fed was... Black men are going to rape your women. Yankees are going to come down here and take over your farms. Um, you're going to you're going to be the second class citizen. Black people are going to own you. Black people are going to have your women. So these people were there was a propaganda. There was a well known propaganda blitz before the Civil War, convincing common dirt farmers who had no reason to fight whatsoever, convincing them that their way of life was in peril and that they were going to be invaded by Northerners and blacks and Everything they knew would be taken from them and destroyed. That was the propaganda blitz perpetrated by the wealthy white landowners. And and it worked. And it usually does. Everybody knows that a big part of war is the propaganda machine that you have to fire up in the beginning to get people motivated. So they did that. So if there's a monument to a regiment that fought in the Civil War, I'm still not sure if that should be at a city hall either. But I differentiate between that and a statue of... of Robert E. Lee, 
or any other number of generals, some of whom were really, really brutal. Now, the Southerners make the argument that people like Sherman shouldn't be aggrandized because Sherman, you know, Sherman was a really brutal general and he did brutal things to civilian populations. And I probably would agree with that. He's a northern. He's a northern general. He's a northern general. Right. But, uh, you know, he fought for his country. And those are the people who we build statues to. We don't like to get into the ugly details. Let's face it. Anybody war, who war fought for the country, especially a general, yeah. probably committed some atrocity in some yes. way, shape, or form. Yes, of course. That's the nature of war, for God's sake, right? So um, you've got a group of people who were rebelling against our government. They're rebelling against the United States government. And, and that's exactly what they were doing. And we built statues to them. It's kind of bizarre. It's kind of bizarre when you think about it. So the statues should come down. And uh, you, you were talking about foundation myths. William, Surf William. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, that... Now we got now we get now we get into the sticky problems. Go ahead. I think the problem of Southern generals isn't so tough for you for you or me. No. But the problem of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, that's another issue. And that gets that gets tricky. What are you saying? They weren't as great as we think they were? I'm saying that we have to start to acknowledge the the their deep, deep flaws and the, the and the and the very the the very the contradictions in the very nature of their being these people who fought for freedom and liberty thomas jefferson who wrote so eloquently about the ideals and the values that this country is founded on and yet owned slaves that contradiction is almost something you would have to you know that almost seems like fiction you yeah. can't believe that that's real that you have a slave owner who so eloquently stated the need for justice and equality and liberty. And here's the irony of ironies. This slave owner went on after his death to motivate freedom fighters all over the world. Mm -hmm. Freedom fighters all over the world would use Jefferson, Jefferson's writings as a template for their, of their ideals and the values that they were struggling for. And he was a slave owner. And he was a slave owner. So, I mean, what a crazy contradiction that not, only did he express these ideas of freedom and, and liberty for the for the uh, the early uh, early Americans. His writings went on to become motivational to people all over the world who were fighting for their freedom. So, you know, this is a really big problem. Do we put up statues of slave? I mean, these people were slave owners. I don't know what to say about that, but I kind of think that over time you're going to see those statues come down too. Really, the founding fathers? Yes. I'd be shocked by that. Yeah. I think you're gonna. I think. I think they're. I think the writings people, are going to be memorialized. The writings are going to be memorialized, but I don't know that they're going to be. The, I think people though kind of look at, um, and I'm not saying this is right, but I, I think they say, well, those that was the norm, that was our cultural norm back then, basically, and uh, while they had, they had slaves. They at the same time were trying to change the cultural norms. Maybe as business people, they couldn't compete well, without slaves. It's an economic thing, you know, uh, and they struggled with it. And I'm not again. I'm not saying this is correct. I'm just trying to have a you know a, a more fair-minded analysis as to why that contradicted uh, well, contradiction me, existed. Let me let me respond. To that, let me respond to both parts of that. I'll, I'll respond to the first part first. That it was a cultural norm that that slavery was normal back then, and an economic necessity, perhaps. And I go, I know that sounds cold as hell, but 
Yeah. Right. Well, let's face it. A lot of the wealth that was generated by early America was generated by slave labor, and right. slaves were never the slaves were never allowed to take part in it. But 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 to your point, and I know you're playing devil's advocate. To your point of, um, it was the norm. We're looking at it through, through 21st century eyes. They were they were men of their time, so they they had a different pers- perspective uh, and perception of of slavery. Um, I say. I don't really buy that argument, and I'll tell you why. There was a pretty robust abolitionist movement starting in the mid-late 1700s, um, including people like uh, uh, John Adams, who were vehemently opposed to slavery and often expressed the, the, the moral decay that slavery would lead to. So these men were educated men. They were, by their standards, very worldly men. They were well aware of abolitionists. So there was a group of people who said slavery is wrong and all of you slave owners are wrong in owning and owning other human beings. So, yes, it was the norm for southern economies. And these are economies of large scale. Let's remember the average farmer in the south didn't own slaves. Maybe, maybe your average, maybe a farmer had a slave in the kitchen, a slave helping out on the farm. Um, And I'm not. I'm not justifying that in any way, shape, or form. But these were not large plantation owners, like this image we have in our mind. But these plantation owners certainly knew of the abolitionist movement. They certainly knew there were a large group of people at home and abroad who were fighting against slavery and said the institution was wrong. They were aware of that. So when people say, oh, it was the norm back then, you know, everybody owned slaves. No, everybody didn't own slaves. And the slave owners had this concept that there was a whole group of people that thought it was morally wrong. What about the, so, econ- what about the econ- I hear that. What about the economic uh, aspect of it? You know, when, when you look at Thomas Jefferson, he was a wealthy man and wanted to be wealthy, I'm sure, uh, as were most of all of the uh, founding fathers. So if you want to retain wealth, gain wealth, you have to have a, a system in place where your costs are low, uh, but production is high. And yes. everybody that you're competing with is, is using that same model. So if you want to compete with them, you know, you have no choice, economically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you're going to force me to get into a condemnation of capitalism, right? Is that what you're going to do to me? You're going to well, force me down that road? I just you know think that needs to be focused on. And then you can really see the coldness and brutal aspect of our humanity when we, we, uh, we can justify in our minds well, that it's okay I, because we're just making a buck. Again, like I am Like everybody not else, or way, trying to. I am not in any way... Um, diminishing the brutality of slavery not in any way slavery was brutal on a number of physical psychological economic levels oh that's, that's clear far, that's clear that far you don't too like complex it. for far too complex for you and me to get into in this conversation but let me say this the life of a slave on a plantation in the south was a brutal existence the life of a factory owner in the north at the start of the industrial revolution wasn't exactly a better roses either so your, your immigrant who came here and got a job in a factory was horribly exploited. Their working conditions were brutal. Their living conditions were brutal. Their diets were pathetic. Um, they had really no way out. So they weren't technically enslaved, but they had these brutal existences. At the, at the base of all of what we're talking about right now is the institution of capitalism. So capitalism is about exploiting labor and resources for maximum profit. That's what plantation owners did. That's what factory owners did. Um, but that's all so, done now. That, thank God we don't do that anymore now. Right, we don't do that anymore. It's all it's all it's all champagne and and, and bonbons. <laughs>
Yeah, no. So, so you know, you're getting into these institutional things. Slavery was, you're saying it's an economic necessity. I haven't ever done any research on uh, uh, the, let me express this clearly. I haven't done any research on the difference between, or the potential difference between plantations if they had paid their labor, if they had employed people to do that work, as opposed to enslaving them to do that work. Because... To own a slave equaled a certain amount of capital expenditure, right? right? Let's pretend. Let's pretend. Let's pretend we're a slave owner, and we only view that human and, being. And again, as a, for for those as an list, for those listening who are more connected to the history on a personal level of slavery in the United States, apologize for how cold we're being in this analysis. But it's a necessary analysis so we can indeed see how freaking cold that institution well, was. I ask my, you know, because this is the thing. But no, and 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 I and I say this with no reservation. I wonder how just inherently brutal these slave owners were. Like I, I, I honestly think there was a certain masochism at work here because you could hire a day laborer and they could come to your farm and they can do the work you need them to do and you could pay them a wage and then they go away, right? Whatever they, there's no welfare, there's no workers' comp. There's no paid vacation. There's none of that, right? Back, we're talking, you know, even now you get that. But let's go back to the olden days. There's none of that. So they come to your farm for a day. They do a day's labor. You pay them whatever crappy wage you pay them, and they go away. Now, compare that to owning them. Now you own them. Now you house them. Now you feed them. Now you actually do provide medical care on some level because you don't want them to get sick and die, right? You're viewing them as an asset. They're no more than a tractor. They're, they're just this asset that you have in your business that you want to maintain so that you don't have capital depreciation. So I know it's a brutal analogy, but what I'm saying is that costs money too. So I always wonder, wouldn't it have been more economically feasible for these plantation owners to just hire people, pay them crappy wages, and maintain your plantation the way you're maintaining it? I don't even know how much it would have cut into their profits because owning slaves had to be um, there Expensive. had to be a capital expenditure yeah. you had to take care of your slaves you don't want your slaves you want if so you buy a slave you don't want that slave to die you want that slave to live and work and produce for you that's the job so I don't know you say it's an economic necessity and I've heard that but I'd be interested to talk to some economist about how that compared to just paying somebody because let's face it the fact the industrialists of the north they didn't own slaves per se. But the conditions of factory owners at that time were, were also pretty brutal. Factory workers. Factory workers. Factory workers. I'm sorry. Factory workers were also pretty brutal. And therefore, um, the factory owner was looking to get the most labor out of that worker for the least amount of expenditure. So, so it's not slavery, technically, but, it, but it's almost there. It's almost slavery. You let them Especially go home. that person has no other option. Well, let's think about where you and I are from. We're from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and, and the the uh, t- the time in, in history where coal mining ruled here, the, the the companies owned them. I mean, they went home, but the the company, the home they went to, they exactly. bought off the company. The store that they went to buy their groceries and even their tools to be miners was owned by the company. You know, yep. all the money was right through the company. The money, the company gave you money, and then you paid back to the company money. A lot of times, you owed money to them uh, at the end of the week because of the groceries you needed, or the tools you needed to mine, or your house payment, or what have you. It was crazy. So right. that was, that was a form of slavery, a little autonomy, but maybe in a way worse. 
because you're on your own in many other regards. Well, it, I, 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 worse or better, I don't know, but I can say it was brutal. Yeah, I don't it know. Was if a brutal, I say it worse, was a brutal. Right. It was a brutal, unjust existence where the worker had almost, almost no rights. So, so I'm not going to get into the moral equivalency. But the women are getting, get, but the women are getting raped, uh, you know, at will by the slave owners. Uh, right. So, like so, so exactly. So, on some levels, it was maybe it wasn't quite at the level of brutality of slavery. No, That's or the, demeaning. Yeah. Slavery, clearly to me, slavery is the ultimate in 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 brutality and and dehumanization. That's that's how I see that. But working in a mine in in Schuylkill County in 1890. Wasn't a nice living either. Wasn't a nice existence either. No. So. So what's our point here? People have been treated like crap in, in many different ways by this one sort of type of, of uh, human being forever. Um, by the system of capitalism. Well, yeah, but before capitalism uh, formally, I guess you could say, existed on, on this continent, um, the Egyptians, you know, uh, the Romans, yeah. <clears throat> you know, you can go on and on and on. Well, you know, that's, it's funny. I'm studying Rome now, and here's what I see. Like, first of all, Roman history, going back to the founding of Rome all the way through Augustus, is really, really dense. There's a ton of names. There's a ton of dates. There's a ton of, ton of dynamics. It's, 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 it's a really daunting task to try and put it to, to bring some structure to it. It's just like Latin. It's funny that Roman history is like studying Latin. Both are very dense. Both are very detail-oriented. Both require a ton of energy to sort of organize your ideas and your thoughts so that you can correctly analyze. So what I tried to do is I, I, I spent the whole summer reading Roman history. That's what I, that's, I'm a fun you're, guy. You're like a that. fun guy. You are I'm a, a fun guy like that. Here's what I take away from Roman history, and I'm going to oversimplify. Roman history is a series of, of class struggles. And the outgrowth of those class struggles was the shaping of a, of a government, um, wars of conquest. And why did these countries go to war with one another? For one reason and one reason only, to, to increase their resources. They needed either room or resources and materials to expand their nation. So all of this stuff is at the root of capitalism. So in ancient Rome, there was no capitalism, but yet we still have a bunch of big historical movements and events that are spurred by spurred on by class struggle. So I see history again. I call myself a Marxist. This makes a certain friend of ours in France very upset with me. He gets mad at me John. because I call myself a Marxist simply because I, I see history. Every time I study history, I see I see a series of class struggles. That's how I distill it down to its very essence. And then from there, I get into names and dates and details and subtle differences. But at its core. You've got class struggle. So you're right. There was no capitalism 3,000 years ago. But guess what? There was still class struggle. Even so if they didn't yeah, call it that at the time. Class struggle's always been the, the uh, factor, uh, the aspect right. of our experience that has existed from the get-go. And uh, also resource, you know, resources as being a, a, a means by which we are driven to, to behave and act in certain ways. We want more resources on an individual level, uh, in, a, in a, a collective sense too if you have a city or a town or a nation you want to have more resources than the other uh town or or uh, nation and your family of course too right so i, I mean these are hu we humans we we haven't changed much in, in in many regards over time we've gotten a bit more civilized in certain parts of of the world but what drives us uh, still is there 
right? I mean, we've tempered it a bit. Well, yeah, of course. You know, like you look at I'm I'm studying Rome now, so you look at all of the um, you look at the battles between Rome and uh, Carthage in in Spain. Just as an example, well, why were they fighting so much in Spain? Well, Spain had a lot of natural resources. Spain had a lot of mining. There was a lot of iron to be found there. There was gold there. There was silver there. I mean, these countries knew we want to control that resource. It's just like colonialism in Africa. Right. You know, the European powers knew that they wanted to control regions of Africa because there was a wealth of natural resources there that were going to make them rich. Um, so it would never was about spreading democracy or culture at the root of all of it or religion or any of the other things we talk about or ethnicity at the at the root is almost always this this battle for resources materials and resources and to me that's at the heart of capitalism because capitalism is about controlling that stuff and making a profit on it but make and it look like it, everybody's got a fair shake and everybody right well that's the a, great yeah. that's the great myth right we yeah. all we all have a shot that's that's the big myth that they like. That's another myth that people like to, per, to you know perpetuate because it justifies their existence. You know, Donald Trump didn't work his way to the top. He was handed Donald to Trump. Him. Donald Trump was born rich. He's a so, prick. Let's just say it. He's a, he's a prick. <laughs> so so you know, the, but the myth is the myth is you know anyone can make it. Well, you know, in theory, yeah, anyone can. But in reality, some people have a leg up on others, a big leg. Um, and again, these are the inequities that capitalism encourages. Right. We've gone full circle, you know, back to the, some of the founding myths of the United States of America here talking with Surf William on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, an extended conversation this time. I'm letting it go a little further this week because I like the vibe uh, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's enjoyable to hear your passion about these these issues such as capitalism and and uh, so why do you get to make all the executive decisions? That's oppression. Well, because it's my show, you know. <laughs> exactly. See, I want to expose you. Exactly. I want to expose you to all your listeners. <laughs> yeah, the myth that I'm a nice guy. Don't exactly. believe it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a Democrat, a, a, a believer in small D democracy. Yeah, small D democracy. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I never heard that. That means you're a Democrat. That means you believe in democracy. Not that you're a member of the Democratic Party, but that you believe in democracy. But I'm blowing those lies out of the water now because I'm showing what a what a uh, a fascist, an auto, what, a, what an autocrat you are. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little little man that Dictator. needs <laughs> that needs to feel like I'm powerful. <laughs> exactly. You know, but my hands are bigger than the president's. Right. My, exactly. My, my hands are bigger than the president's. That's not. At least I got that going for me. Uh, oh boy, where are we going with this conversation right now, Doctor? No, I so I don't even want to talk about him because no, it's, that's and I, not. Know, I know it has to be discussed, you know, in some capacity. But I'm just I'm done with it. It's it's an embarrassment. Um, I, it's an embarrassment. It's 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 damaging. It's it's demoralizing. And you know, Hillary Clinton is out on the book tour now, as you know. Yes, I can't listen to the interviews because I, it's not because I have a problem with Hillary. Because if I have any problems with Hillary. They're no greater or smaller than problems I have with any politician. Uh, the problem I have with Hillary's book tour is the, 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 the vitriolic reaction of people on the left to her and how much they despise her. And I just say to myself, how do you despise this person who's accomplished so much? And I don't see that level of hate towards men. 
And then the other part of that that troubles me that makes me not want to listen to her is the thought that she should have been president. And what an incredible missed opportunity we had to make her president. Not that she would have been unbelievable or great. She might have been an average president for all I know, but she would have been the first female president. And you cannot argue that she had the qualifications for that office, regardless of what you think about our political system. So watching her and listening to her is too troubling to me. If there's too much there that's hurtful, I can't do it. You want to and forget so it I happened, really haven't yeah. listened. I, I, I can't even, yeah, I can't even, I, I haven't listened to an interview yet. I haven't read an excerpt. I've only seen the headlines as they pop up on Facebook and CNN. And I just discard them because I think to myself, I don't want to see people on the left of the political spectrum eating their own and, and destroying their own, their own movement here, you know, because they have these strong feelings about Hillary pro or con. It's really, really unsettling to me, and so I don't even bother. Just like I can't listen to Trump. I can't even listen to him speak. It's, it's, it's too upsetting to me on too many levels to even hear him try to utter a, a, a sentence in English. Yeah. So I just let it go. Uh, I, I find myself occupied with other things. Well, that might be healthy, but eventually, you know, you have to get back in to try to make change and make sure it doesn't get worse as a citizen, you know? Uh, I, I, I had an interview last week with uh, our friend Timothy Kreider, and, uh, you know, acclaimed essayist, cartoonist. And I asked him, you know, what kind of, influ- what kind of um, sort of insight he has to share about where we are in this country. And he basically said we need, you know, leaders that are thoughtful and, and such. And it's not him and, you know, go, f- go to it millennials because he's, he's done. He's burned out. Uh, at 50, right. you know, in, in that regard. <laughs> right, right. And, right. and uh, you know, it does, it is hard. It is hard to keep that energy going and fighting. You get a little bit, you know, you start thinking about your life, uh, it, it, personal life, and say, you know, this is taking so much of my energy and focus away from my personal relationships. Yeah. I, I, and I only have so much more time. You start realizing that. Uh, too, a little wisdom sets in about you know the folks that you're ignoring in your life, and you, you say, okay, you got younger folk, you do it now more. I'll help, but it's on you. And I think that's but, a natural progression. What do you think? We have about a minute. What do you yep. think about the prospect of, of of us having the generation coming up, the generations coming up behind we Xers, uh, you and yeah. I are Xers, uh, yes. taking taking hold of the reins and, and, and not going down the path that uh, the right-wing idiots, as you call them, have, have us on now? Well, let me say two things. First of all, when you talk about you know keeping your psychic energy up and not getting sucked into the, the, the abyss of, of political, po- the political quagmire uh, and, and, and the, and the uh, uh, miasma of, of political debate, I think of Ronald Reagan. I know you weren't expecting that, but I always say this. Reagan always was about being the happy warrior. And as much as I despised Reagan and disagreed with almost everything he did politically, he was he was this jovial guy. He always had a smile and a pat on the back and a nice homespun thing to say to people, even when he was, you know, even when he was um, advancing the most brutal policies. You know, he still had that smile on his face. And I looked at this guy and I always used to think, God, he's always so happy. I hate this guy. How does he do it? He was the happy warrior. That's what they, that was his moniker. That's what they called him. And on a certain level, I like that. I want to fight the fight. I want to advance the policies I believe in. I want to continue to be an advocate for what I feel is morally and ethically and politically right. But I don't want it to sink me. 
I want to stay upbeat. So that's the challenge. And this is what I tell my students too: continue fighting, but keep your perspective. Stay positive. Keep your personal relationships. Do the things you enjoy doing. You can still fight the fight without getting sucked into the negativity of it. Um, as far as the millennials go, no knock on the millennials, but I, I just heard a, a, an article yesterday on the on NPR about research on the millennials, and their habits are very conservative. Their, their, their outlook on life is very much like their parents. They want to get married. They want to get a decent job. They want to buy a house. They want to have a kid. So over and over again, when they do these surveys with millennials, they're not finding political engagement and um, uh, uh, a desire to change the system. They're finding people who are looking for ways to get along in the system such as it is right now and to just get their little piece of the pie, which is very much, you know, going back to like the 50s and the way people thought about politics and economics. So I don't know what the prospect is for millennials changing everything. Uh, I, I can't really speak to that. I see a lot of conservatism in that generation. Now, I teach high school, and I will tell you that my, my you know, the, the, the kids who I've seen for the past few years who are juniors and seniors, there's a lot of left-leaning kids. They're coming out of high school with the sense of, of social justice, a sense of political engagement, a sense of, of, of they, they seem to have a well-positioned moral compass. They, they acknowledge the exploitation and the brutality and the injustices in the world, and they at least say that they want to do something about that. So I'm getting mixed signals from that generation. Well, but what I'm, seeing from, what I'm seeing from current teenagers, later adolescents, I'm talking right, about juniors, right. seniors, freshmen in college, I'm seeing them um, express a desire to identify and change injustices in the world. And that's, so I'm, 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 yeah. I'm getting a little hope from that's that. That's partly because their history teachers are Marxist. Sir William, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the program and sharing uh, your, your thoughts, your insights, and your expertise. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have you on, and we'll be talking to you again soon. Take care. Thank you for, thank you for your good taste in having me on your show. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Harry Dean played it cool and clean while endeavoring to reap all the joy and fun that he could from this American machine. In return, we have been given an actor's art with the poet's heart and a voice so poignant in sound. Catch you, cool man, on the rebound. Your dad told you not to look at me Down came the fist Upon your head I was the only other adult around I was the only other adult around I was 18, you were eight Maybe you Episode 300 
167 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor, good friend, and resident historian, Surf William. Thanks for sharing your insight, your passion, and your vitriol, and your positive attitude as well. I'd also like to thank these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Harry Dean Stanton, The English Beat, Yole Tango, Hopalong, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. So nice to have you with us. Until next week, enjoy this one. Take care. <laughs>